Warm greetings and welcome to all our friends and brethren around the world. We hope you all are having a wonderful Feast of Tabernacles filled to the full with fellowship and God's Spirit. The last few days we've all been hearing messages about God's Feast in the Millennium. God is giving us a vision of the world to come and His glorious kingdom. He's also called you and me to fulfill a great mission. What is your mission in life? And what is the mission of the church? The vast majority of the world has no idea of God's awesome purpose for mankind. They may go through life wondering what is it all about, or perhaps not caring at all. Many come to the end of their lives and think, what was it all for? Is that all there is? This world's scientists, educators, politicians, and religious leaders don't know the answer. Some may think that they know all of the answers to life's great questions, but they are, in fact, a part of a world being deceived by Satan himself. Revelation 12 and verse 9. For ages, mankind has been searching for meaning and understanding of the mysteries of life. But God has chosen a select few, and He's given us the free gift of wonderful understanding and the answers to the great questions of the universe. Jesus Christ gave us purpose and inspiration for our calling. He said, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. That's John 14, verse 12. We can rejoice that we've been called to do a special work, the work of Almighty God. He's given us understanding of the meaning of life, a privilege relatively few people on the earth have been given. Brethren, that is tremendous, to be personally called by God the Father, to know Him, to walk with Him, and to be involved in His great work. We can never let ourselves forget this, and we must hang on to the truth and finish our race as individuals and as God's church, the body of Christ. We are on a mission. We've been given an incredible task by our Creator in Jesus Christ, and we must answer that call with all of our being. It is a mission that only Jesus Christ can finish by working through us as a body, as a family, as a team. Back in the May-June 2001 issue of the Living Church News, Dr. Roderick C. Meredith wrote an article titled, Our Mission as a Church. In this year's feast film, we'd like to focus on the sevenfold mission he outlined in that article. You'll be hearing about this commission from many of the Living Church of God's faithful ministers who serve God's people all over the world. Wherever you are on this earth, I urge you to wholeheartedly do your part to fulfill this mission with our Savior's help, power, and guidance. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Behind the Work 2014, our Philadelphian mission. The Living Church of God presents Our Philadelphian Mission Preach the gospel of the kingdom and the true name of Jesus Christ Preach the end time prophecies and the Ezekiel warning to the Israelitish peoples Feed the flock and build all our members to the stature of Jesus Christ as best we can be examples to the church at large and to the world of Christ's way of life. 
learn and practice servant leadership in all our dealings with others. Restore original Christianity and all that this implies. Build an atmosphere of radiant faith within God's church. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. The preaching of the gospel is pivotal. The Bible says this gospel will be preached and published to all nations and then the end will come. That is a pivotal statement of timing. Mr. Armstrong always emphasized that. The gospel of the kingdom of God must be preached unto all nations and then the end will come. So unless we are doing a work, unless we are preaching the gospel, the end will not come. It's extremely important because it's a commandment of Jesus Christ. He said, go unto all the world and preach the gospel, the good news to every nation. We have to obey that commandment. If we are not doing God's work, if we are not preaching His Word to the world, we are disobeying Jesus Christ. The preaching of the Gospel is essential for the church to survive. If the church becomes a uh, social club to take care of our needs, our individual needs, we immediately fail to fulfill the very responsibility that our Father has given us. We are called not for our own salvation. We are called to help save all humanity alive. God tells us, yes, he will intervene in human affairs. Yes, God gives us hope for a better world. That's the reason why we have to preach the gospel. This is the hope for mankind, hope of true prosperity peace and justice. Preaching the gospel is the vital element for preparing the return of Christ. I was just reading in Revelation today and three times it talks about I am God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the world needs to know God's plan. It needs to know what the future holds. And of course the telecast and our preaching through the internet and the publications this is what we've been doing for decades. We need to prepare the world, the church, and ourselves for that greatest event since creation, and actually the greatest event since Christ's sacrifice, that he's coming to establish peace on this world. That's the, what we need most of all. We need God's kingdom to come here on this earth. And when I think about it and what it entails, the fact that Christ really will establish his kingdom on earth and we're not going to fly off into heaven, into some abyss where we're going to be playing on little harps and all of these things that has been taught over the years. It's amazing to know and understand that not only do we see it, but it's right in the pages of the Bible. So when we think about the gospel of the kingdom, we're able to warn humanity uh, of the horrors that's about to happen, but that you can escape those things if you turn to God and obey Him. Christ says, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
So real love is, is understanding the gospel, understanding that, that, that includes all the law, the whole word of God, as Mr. Meredith calls it. And I think that is one of the good things about being and living is that we are not hindered from preaching the whole word of God. What is God trying to create in us? He's trying to create himself. God is reproducing himself in us. And Herbert W. Armstrong boiled it down so economically. There's a way of give and there's a way of get. And if you want to be in the God family, you've got to learn the way of give. And how in the world could you know the truth of, of the purpose of mankind, what the gospel of the kingdom of God actually means? How could you know what is coming on this world and this country and not feel compelled to give and to tell other people about that? Are we concerned about the future family of God? Uh, they're not they're not begotten family yet, but they will be in time. Are we concerned about sowing those seeds? Or are we just concerned about what's best for us? And we can monitor ourselves. Is my heart in it? Or am I only interested in what's best for me and my family and maybe my congregation? And I think that's a critical part of our training, to shape our minds in outgoing concern. The true gospel inspires us to a goal that is so much greater than we could ever imagine to be a part of the very family of God uh, for all of eternity is something to get excited about. People don't get excited about going to heaven, uh, sitting on a cloud, eating uh, Philadelphia cream cheese, as one advertisement has it. But people are excited by being a part of the very family of God, solving the problems that exist on this earth, having a productive life for all of eternity. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God is the most important thing for us to be able to do in this church at this time. Now, of course, it does include Jesus Christ because he's going to be the king of the kingdom. Uh, Mr. Armstrong used to say you need a territory, you need a people, you need laws, and you need a king. Well, the scripture says we are to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Um, and there's one other scripture which says, and Jesus Christ, because after all, Jesus Christ is the king of the kingdom, He's the heart of this whole concept of the kingdom of God. Kingdom in the Greek means royal sovereignty and power. Where does that begin? The answer is it begins in the church. Mr. Armstrong years ago used to call um, the church the kingdom in embryo. It's, it's, the, it's the domain of God's sovereignty and royal power. Jesus Christ was king of kings. If you understand history and you understand royalty and you understand, you know, people are always talking about, I know my rights. Well, rights are accorded by beings who understand law. You know, there is no constitution of the elephants. There is no dolphin bill of rights. They don't understand law. I've often used the example that if someone, you know, knocks on your door and saying, you know, open up in the name of the law. Well, that name means something, and we open the door because they have that power and authority to act on that behalf. But when we think in terms of God, it is even more real. Because here's the creator of the universe, and that name carries authority, it carries weight, it carries importance. And if any human name is important, like the office of the president or whatever, how much more so the very God of the universe? Preaching the true name of Jesus Christ involves preaching exactly what Jesus Christ preached on this earth. Who he was, what he did, that he was the son of God, that he was going to die for the sins of mankind, that he did arise after three days. He taught people to keep the laws of God. 
He didn't uh, say the laws were a burden and we have to do away with them. When you preach the full name of Jesus Christ, you're going to be preaching all of his message that we read about in the scriptures. Sometimes people get all upset over the true name of Jesus Christ. Um, and they say, well, we should be trying to pronounce it in its Aramaic form. Uh, I guess that was Yeshua or Yahshua. And then that was Hellenized into Jesus, which was then Latinized into Yesu which was then anglicized into Jesus. But when we think of the true name of Jesus Christ, we think of his identity. That is his true name. We as individuals, when we refer to a name, we associate it with something, an individual. You know, a tree is a tree or what have you. But the name of Jesus Christ and the name of God the Father, it implies much, much more than that. It's their character, it's their nature the characteristics of who they are, what they are, what they represent. I don't know exactly what the count is, but you can go through God's Word, and there are many, many different descriptive adjectives of God's name. He's called Wonderful Counselor. He's our Redeemer, our Lord, our Savior. Creator, Sustainer, Healer, Provider. Jesus Christ, of course, is our Lord, our High Priest, our Messiah. He's the Creator. He's a family. He will be the mighty God, and he will be everlasting father, and his government will be on his shoulder. And God is the father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, as the apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 15. So God's kingdom is a family, it's a government. It's so important to understand that authority and the meaning of who God is, what He is, and what His kingdom is. It's a royal family into which we can be born as kings and priests. Jesus Christ is referred to as the Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus Christ is going to come back and bring peace to this earth. So God names people in the Bible uh, with specific names. And it's interesting to see how that ties in then with the rest of his plan. The Apostle Paul said there are many Christs that would come. And of course there are many false Christs. And the world has lost sight of the true God. They have rejected the true God. They have rejected his way of life. And the world needs to know who Jesus really is, the real Jesus. And we have that opportunity. We have that responsibility. And uh, rather than learning about a Jesus that has come to do away with his father's law or a Jesus people think or a God that people think who was harsh and dictatorial and really didn't love people and enjoyed people's suffering or inflicted suffering on people, no, they need to understand that God is a God of mercy and that he is a God of compassion and the world does not understand the true Jesus Christ and the way of life that he came to bring the world, how to live, how to enjoy life. And we have that opportunity, we have that responsibility to give that to the world before Christ returns. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them. He is taken away in his iniquity, 
but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. The Ezekiel warning message is extremely important because it's a warning for our people today. Uh, when we look at the book of Ezekiel, we see that he gave a message not to the Jews only, but to the house of Israel. And, of course, we understand that the house of Israel is not the same as the Jews. And yet he gave that warning more than a hundred years after Israel had gone into captivity. And we're told then that he is to warn the house of Israel about a captivity in the future. And a lot of people say, well, why do we have to do that? And, of course, by that we're talking basically about Ezekiel chapter 3 and Ezekiel chapter 33. When God gave the commission to Ezekiel, he said, you will go to the house of Israel. When Ezekiel was alive, where was the house of Israel? Did you know they were already in captivity? And so this commission was not for Ezekiel's day. It was for our day. And of course, Jesus pointed out, Matthew 24, that the great tribulation is coming. And so we need to warn people of that great tribulation. It's also brought out, of course, in Daniel 12, uh, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, the time of Jacob's trouble. We need to warn people to flee from the wrath to come. The warning was basically, if you turn away from me, there are going to be very serious consequences. If you obey me, then the blessings will be there. But there are many people today that don't believe uh, that God exists. And yet when you read through the book of Ezekiel, the phrase is used about 70 times, they shall know that I am the Lord. And that phrase is stated in the context of when these prophecies in the book of Ezekiel and other places in the Bible begin to come true. It's going to shake this world. And as people see these things coming to pass, and if they hear that warning message, they're going to put two and two together. And there's a whole bunch of people out there that need to be told of what is coming. I need to be told that because there is a tribulation coming for our people. And when they're in tribulation, those people are going to find themselves in a terrible situation. And having heard the message, they will be very encouraged to know that it's going to finish. It's going to finish and we're going to have Jesus Christ return. It's not God's will that any should perish. God loves everybody. In his time, he will save everybody. He will give them a choice. I pray that God will have mercy on those people. They don't know what we know. We have that warning. And our job is is to warn the nation unless they repent. God knows what he's doing. And he knows how to get our attention. And that's what he's doing. Not just those that he's called his first fruits, but all mankind. And so pain at times is necessary to get our attention. And he is a God of love. And when he brings pain and suffering, it's because of love. He simply wants to get our attention. He simply wants us to go a different way. Agape love is very different than the way that this world interprets love. And God, out of love, corrects his servants. He prunes those that he loves. God is a God of love, but he's also a God who does not tolerate sin. And he commands us to repent. And what he wants to do is want us to live as he has been living ever since because his commandments reflect his mind. And as you said, he is a God of love. That's what defines his nature, his character, and he wants us to develop that nature and that character as well. As a human father, you want your children to do so well, 
you almost cry that you want them to, to do the things that you're asking them to do because they know better. And it's out of love that Jesus Christ, it's out of love that God the Father, it's out of love that a decent mom and dad tells their, their sons and their daughters, here's what you should do because this is the way that things are going to be successful to you. This is the way to life, to eternal life. You know that the house is going to fall down. You're going to warn your family, get out of the house. Uh, you're going through an earthquake. You're going to tell the people, we're having an earthquake, get out. I mean, it, it's just normal to warn people that are around us when we're knowing that something's going to be happening. They may not understand it. They may not get to it. They may not do anything with it. But at one point, when they're going to get into that crisis, when the Great Tribulation is going to hit and all the rest, at one point, you may come and going to say, you know what? I heard somebody somewhere told me that this was coming. And, and that got, that's why God says you'll have no excuse. You will have heard that this is going to be coming. And you will have heard of what you needed to be doing. God never hide anything from people. When he did major thing in history, he always informed people before. See the life of the prophet of the ancient, uh, the Old Testament. It was always the same thing. And now we are at the end of the world. And this is most important at that time that we inform the world of what is coming. For them to be knowing what is coming and why it is coming. Not many people are even aware that there should be a warning given. We read in Ezekiel that, you know, unless we do this, unless someone does this, you know, the blood will be on the watchman's head. And so we take that very seriously. And it really is one of the things that just completely separates us, the living church of God, from even other churches of God. Uh, it's, it's vitally important that, that someone do that. I mean, obviously, the, the prophecy is there for a reason. Uh, you call it an instruction. It's not even necessarily a prophecy. It's, it's a warning for the watchman to take note of that and to take that seriously. And one of the reasons it says that is because if it comes on them unaware, if they, they have no clue, well, that's kind of unfair. You know, it, it's, that's not the way God operates even. He says, too, that, that he won't do anything unless he reveals it to his servants, the prophets, to begin with. And that's just the way he's always operated. He's a loving God. God is so loving that he sends a warning message. And I'm just glad that we're able to do that, that we're the ones who take that responsibility on. I wish we could do even more to do that. The watchman who sees must tell, or the responsibility for what happens to the people is on his head. This comment that the Ezekiel warning is uh, not a salvational issue, well, it may be one for the watchman. If the watchman sees and does not warn, then the blood of those people is on his head. So we're not only preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, but we also preach a warning for what we see because God has given his church vision, spiritual vision, and a context, a context of, of, of the flow of prophetic history, of the future history to come in prophecy, and what's going to happen to the United States and Britain and the British Commonwealth nations. And if we know these things, then we have the responsibility to warn them. If we do not fulfill this commission and the nations are not warned, then they die in their sins, but he would hold us accountable. So it is important that we fulfill that commission to ensure that the blood of this world isn't on our shoulders.
and we have done our duty so that when Christ comes, he will be happy to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. To feed the flock. I think it's something that is very much close to the heart of Jesus Christ. After he resurrected, I think you all know how he asked those questions to Peter when he prepared breakfast for them by the Sea of Galilee. And then he looked at Peter and said, Do you love me? And Peter said, Yes, Master, you know I love you. And he said, Tend my sheep. And he asked him three times, in the context of love, he loved him, and he said, feed my lambs and feed my sheep. So it's something very close to the heart of Jesus Christ. Peter was being instructed to feed God's sheep, feed God's sheep with food which was appropriate for them based upon the Word of God, and in particular, the law of God. Uh, the very profound focus foundation in terms of the uh, uh, in terms of the feeding process. We should feed on Christ by studying His Word. Uh, if we eat of Christ, we actually eat the Bible. As David said of uh, God, he said, "The Lord is my shepherd, and he provides green pastures." And so he provided for uh, David as his servant, uh, the food spiritually that he needed. And Bible brings that out as the Word of God is the bread of life. Remember that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Christ said, Men shall not live by bread only, but by every word that come out of God's mouth. God was not talking about physical foods, but the spiritual food. Every minister has the responsibility to feed the flock with good spiritual nourishment. Part of our responsibility is to make the understanding of scriptures plain. Our job is to give the meaning of what the verses are. And so part of what we do is teach God's laws and the spirit of those laws to people. And so as a shepherd over a flock, you're there to, to teach and guide people in the way of God. Part of that feeding process actually involves every member helping and encouraging and strengthening other members. And so I, I don't see, let's say within a, within a congregation, I don't see myself as the one who does all the feeding. I feel like my job is to, is to certainly to, to feed and encourage and strengthen and, and inspire and educate people. But I think a lot of that growth, let's say, feeding is, 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 is a, a prerequisite to growth, happens by generating a, an atmosphere by which other members are helping and encouraging and strengthening 
each other, and that, that actually lends itself to growth. And, and so it's, it's something that really each and every one of us is involved in, whether we have a, a pastoral role or whether we're, uh, we're in a congregation and we think, well, I, I don't have any you know, great authority. We can be a, a great help in feeding and benefiting the flock uh, no matter what particular role we hold. Coming from a country of, of sheep raisers, where sheep outnumber the people by about 20 to 1, I would say that sheep are quite specific in what they need. They're not like goats who will eat anything. Sheep will want a good diet um, that's been provided by the, um, by the farmer and a good lush pasture that's suited to their needs. So feeding the flock in a spiritual sense is providing them food that they need. A good shepherd will, be, will, will know of deficiencies in his grazing and so should a pastor know of deficiencies in the flock that they, uh, they need to have certain matters dealt with in a timely manner. Sheep, of course, are very responsive to the shepherd, the one who's responsible to look after them. Uh, they depend on him, they look to him for their sustenance. Sheep do not or cannot take care of themselves, which is an amazing thing. And when you think about ourselves as far as uh, disciples or uh, members of the Church of God and Christ being the chief shepherd, we have to depend on him for everything. We have to look to God for every aspect of our life. I have sheep's home and uh, it's very interesting to see how humble uh, animals and uh, I suppose it's because we have to be humble like Christ was humble. Sheep are very humble creatures. Uh, and any of them that think they've got another idea and take off, uh, they know it. And I think as sheep, we know that as well. You know, if we get our own ideas, if we get a little bit hard-headed, we know it. Sheep know that as well. It's uh, easy for a person to see when, when you have sheep and you have goats. In the case of my parents in the center of the island of Puerto Rico, uh, they have both. They look alike, uh, animals that look alike, but there is a big difference between the conduct of, let's say, the sheep and the goats. Goats, you have to take care of them. They jump over the fence. They, they, they are difficult to be, uh, to be uh, uh, contained. But the sheep, they don't, I mean, you put, there, you, you put them there and they, they don't cause any problem. The difference between sheep and a goat, goat it tends to be more independent, it doesn't need a leader, and it can survive by themselves, either in a group or just alone, but most of the time goat is a loner. He wants his people to be like a sheep, because sheep is an animal, lives in a flock, and cannot survive by themselves. When maybe a lamb or a sheep just gone astray from their flock, from their group, then there is a tendency that it will be vulnerable and even can lead to death. Why? Because a sheep doesn't know where to go. Sheep needs a shepherd, someone to guide them, to tell them what to do, and to help them to survive by doing the instruction that the sheep were given. If you've ever been on a farm and noticed the different animals, the sheep are the ones that are least likely to cause a problem. And what I mean by that is they're generally gentle. The little ewes, the lambs that are born, are, you can handle them right off. They're easy to work with. Uh, the sheep don't tend to press 
as other animals would, like a goat. And yet they're easily led. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. They will follow the shepherd wherever the shepherd uh, leads them. So that would be very descriptive of God's people. They follow, but they also hear the voice of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself is shown in the scripture as the Lamb of God, both in the Old Testament by prophecy of his sacrifice, in the New Testament by the, by the fulfillment of that, and then in the book of Revelation chapter 5 it speaks of Jesus Christ by title as a spirit being now at the right hand of his Father as the Lamb. And so literally that analogy continues to us because we're going to be a part of that family. And so the analogy in the scripture regarding sheep is not a negative. It's a very positive thing when you look at the reality that Jesus Christ is the first example in the scripture of being God's servant through sacrifice as the Passover lamb. It's interesting that Jesus Christ is referred to as the lamb. And we know that he is the first of the first fruits. And we know that we are first fruits, so we are to emulate everything about him. And so, even as far as sheep, it's, it's, a very positive, it's a very positive word to be used for his people, having Jesus Christ living his life in us. The spirit that he gives, it's a spirit of peace. Uh, sheep are generally peaceful creatures, as opposed to his description of others as beasts. Christ is the Lamb of God. So his spirit runs through his people as he grants it. So they would also be sheep and peaceful in their nature and how they operate because his spirit is running through them. As we allow him to live his life within us, we're going to be doing the same things. We're going to have outflowing concern for other people. We're going to have joy. We're going to have the self-control. Uh, we're going to uh, allow the, the, the fruits of righteousness to be seen in us because we're going to have... Christ living his life, he's, his righteousness will be uh, shown through us. We have to reflect Jesus in our hearts. We have to follow his instructions. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 20, which is uh, Dr. Meredith's favorite scripture, it says that, we are crucified with Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ lives in us because we reflect his attitude, his character in us. If Jesus Christ is living in us, then we could imitate what Jesus Christ had shown to us, observing, obedience, and uh, peaceful way of life. Yes, we learn and we practice righteousness, justice, and in this way, while we do the right thing, we're a light to everybody, and especially we can have an enjoyable life because God is with us, is in us, and in this way we walk with Him. We have to have Christ living in us in order to overcome the world. We have to have Christ living in us in order for us to overcome Satan and our own weaknesses. Anything that we do that is noble and good, that is because Christ lives in us. Uh, the carnal mind is, is enmity against God. The heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. We don't have the strength. We don't have the human power to fulfill God's law of love. 
But he tells us in Romans 5 and verse 5 that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So when Christ is living his life in us, we can bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. And so we radiate the fruits of God's Holy Spirit. As he told us in John 15, 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So by Christ living in us, he leads us through his church, through his ministry. He leads us through our personal Bible study and through God's Holy Spirit that leads us. So yes, we are to be sheep that follow the great shepherd and to be obedient and to be loving and to be submissive. are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Being an example to God's people in the world really is a command of God, isn't it? Doesn't he command us to be lights? To be lights that stand on a hill? someone through whom he can work, someone through whom he can draw people to his church. He wants to be able to magnify himself and magnify his church and the importance of his church. And we can be used by him to do that, either as a stepping stone for other people to come to him, or the example on the flip side is we can actually be a stumbling block for people to come to him if we've got the wrong kind of example. And, of course, God wants us to be that right example that he can use to draw people to him. The membership is vital to uh, the membership. Uh, they represent to one another, and we're inspired by them. They need to internalize what they're being taught through God's Word and to help other brethren uh, by their actions. But it isn't just within the congregations that they inspire. It's that they go out to their jobs, they go out into their families, and they express what they know is the Spirit of God in them. They're patient, they're, they're loving, they're kind, they're gentle. The fruits of the Spirit, as it says in Galatians, the, uh, the fifth chapter, definitely are there through the, the Spirit in them. If we say we are a Christian, what we're basically saying is, I am a disciple, um, I'm a representative of Jesus Christ. And we say we attend the living church of God, so our conduct does need to be above reproach. And you know, just as God wanted the ancient Israelites to set an example so that others would want to come into to physical uh, Israel, you know, so too if we're setting that example, that genuine example um, of walking the way Christ walked, we will attract you know, others into God's church, into spiritual Israel. Christ has called us to be examples, to be the light. We represent him, and we know very well Dr. Meredith's favorite scripture, <laughs> that we're crucified with Christ. And the way that he lives in us is by how we, uh, we follow that spirit leading us in our lives. A good example is far more impacting than a lengthy sermon. There was someone who said, I'd rather 
see a sermon and hear one any day. You may be living next to someone who has been observing you, leaving every Sabbath, going somewhere, coming back. They may not know where you're going or what, what exactly you do when you get there. But they recognize that you're different, you act differently, you relate to them differently, you have a different temperament. And it's also in our conduct, it's in our language, it's in our dress, it's about your core beliefs, who and what you are and what you do. And that is how I think in most instances that those that are even not within the church can learn from those that are in the church because of their conduct and their maturity. We work in the office in, in Adelaide in, on the main street of this little tiny town. Everybody knows that we're the Living Church of God and, and I tell the staff there, I said, if you walk out the front door, you're on display. And if you're having an argument or if you're uh, doing something that you shouldn't, people drive past or the locals see you, they're going to go, oh, that's that Living Church of God. Yeah, now we know what they get up to. Uh, so, you know, everywhere we go, we can, we can be a light to the world. People are always watching. Uh, I used to work in public relations, and one of the things that we always did was make sure that uh, we were spreading a consistent message about who we are, uh, because if you ever uh, send a, a message that's off-key, uh, so to speak, uh, then pretty soon people begin to identify you that way. Uh, so if you're not setting a right example of who you are, for instance, through social media, through your Facebook page, if, if you're on Facebook and you talk about watching vampire movies, uh, then you're sending a mixed message about what God's way of life is. We are the representatives of God Almighty. If you think about the two ways of life, the give way and the get way, God's way of life is about giving and it's about serving and it's about helping. And so if we're not a good example and we're not practicing that way of life and living that way of life, we miss what it's all about. If we do not practice what we preach, if we do not implement it, then when the hard times come, it's obvious we're fakes. God's Word shows us over and over again that, that um, we learn lessons from implementing the principles we find in Scripture. Um, and, and, and what better way to um, learn these lessons and to be able to show that you're learning or, or, or proving you're learning than the tests we go through when we deal with people. Many people come into the church, about 50% of the people coming into the church come through personal contact, personal relationships. And then there, of course, is the example in 1 Corinthians, the seventh chapter, where Paul says, how do you know, O husband, that you won't save your wife for non-members? How do you know, O wife, that you won't save your husband? Referring to a non-member mate. And I know examples years ago of a woman who was faithful to her non-member husband. And I believe it was 11 or 12 years after she was a member, he became converted because of her long-term example over those years. It really is important for all of us to remember we are Christians 24 hours a day. Why is that? Well, on one hand, I, I was called through the television program, among other things. I saw Mr. Armstrong on the television program and, and started wanting the literature. But before that, there was someone I knew in the church. And had her example been different? Has she been a different kind of person? I might not have even been interested in watching that television program. Uh, someone said it once, and I can't recall where it was said, and it's probably been said a lot of times, but someone once said that for some people, you are the only Bible 
they will ever read. And what they read in that Bible is going to potentially be a tool God can use to bring them directly to him. So we have to remember in every single interaction for the, the police officer that pulls us over for a speeding ticket or the librarian uh, that we're turning a book into, we never know what God might use in our example to show them a way of life. And we have to keep that in mind all the time. We need to set that example for the world that there is a better way. Christ did say that he came to give us life and that life more abundantly. The world doesn't have abundant life. Satan has deceived this whole world and given humanity his way of life. Of course, as Christ said, Satan is a murderer and a liar from the very beginning. And this world is based on hatred, it is based on lies, and yet if we live according to God's laws, according to his statutes and commandments, people will see that in us. And as uh, uh, the Apostle Peter said, you know, we need to be ready to give an answer to the hope that is in us. People will see that hope. Essentially, we're talking about character. We're talking about how we live it, you know, what we are inside, not just what we think. Though thinking is part of it, but it's not just the knowledge of the truth alone. If that were so, of course, we know Lucifer had a great knowledge of the truth initially. So it is a way of life, and it must become us what we are internally. God's truth teaches that Christianity is a way of life. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which talks about the various gifts that God gives to members of his church. And then towards the end of that chapter, it says, but I show you a better way. And then you go straight into 1 Corinthians 13, which is the famous love chapter. So love isn't another doctrine, it's a way of living. And I oftentimes think of um, the scripture in John that talks about Christ bringing a new commandment, that we should love one another, but then it says, as I have loved you. Love is a way of life, and I think Christ gave us the balance and, and gave us, the, if you like, the whole picture of what living that way of life is all about, and of course it's done by God's Spirit dwelling in us. So it is very, very important. If, if, you, if you think that Christianity is just do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, i.e. a collection of doctrines, you really miss something, because Christianity is an all-embracing way of life that covers everything, and that is basically given to us through the example of Christ and through the impact of God's Spirit. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. One of the phrases that is used uh, quite often in the church, in fact, Dr. Meredith has made it one of the seven points of the commission that we have, is servant leadership. And for a lot of people, they think it's, a, they think it's an oxymoron. How can a servant be a leader? And how can a leader be a servant? Uh, they just don't seem to gel, you know. Uh, leaders should be out leading, not serving. Servants should be over there serving, not out leading. <laughs> and so it's really a wonderful concept. It's the major thing 
Because we are nothing at the beginning. God calls us, and he wants, he doesn't call calls us for ourselves. By doing the work and preparing to serve in the world tomorrow, we are getting saved. We are on our way to salvation. But we are not called first to be saved, but to serve. Servant leadership is a tremendously important concept. When you examine the leadership of this world, and I really know of no outstanding exceptions to this, individuals who are in power have very selfish motives, even when they want to help their country or help their people. So often they do it the way they think it should be done. And oftentimes it'll be a compromise between, yes, helping people, but they also get. It's a get way of life. Look at the dictators of the world. Who really there, they may proclaim, I'm a servant of the people, and they're drinking out of solid gold bowls, you know, or, or whatever the case is. But that person who truly is the servant doesn't have to tell you he's the leader. It's about power. For many years, for many uh, millennia, you might say, power has been what has driven civilizations rather than concern for one another. And here we have a situation where Jesus Christ came and gave himself. He emptied himself of his power and became a servant that he could take upon himself the penalty of death for all humanity. So we have a great uh, example of contrast between the way of this world and the way of Jesus Christ. Servant leadership has been a theme in the Living Church of God for a number of years. And I first began thinking about that when, frankly, when Dr. Meredith began to address that at conferences. And it all comes from the example of Jesus Christ because he was the greatest leader of all times and he was and is the greatest servant. He said that greater love has no one than this, that a person lays his life down for his friends. And Christ did just that. He laid his life down, not just for friends, but for all the world. The Father and Him created the heavens and the earth. Sometimes when I go for a walk in the park and I see the trees, and if it's at night and I see the, the big dipper in the sky pointing to the north star, I think it's hard for us, brethren, to understand that the one who made the constellations and the galaxies, that that one and the Father, he decided to come down because they wanted more members in their family and the Creator of the heavens and the earth by whom all things were created. He became a human being like we are. And he went and died for us so we could become part of his family and be one with him. We have this great being that was all supreme, almighty. And that being then became flesh. That being grew up as a young boy, uh, never sinned. That being became a young man and eventually was baptized by John. That being then taught and suffered and was eventually sacrificed, unjustly so. And that being laid down his life for us, the ultimate act of service. He not only gave his life, which is a complete sacrifice for us, which there's no greater gift that we can give than the life that we have been given. Christ did that. 
as our Savior, our Redeemer. But then he also provided the ultimate leadership because it's through his example and through uh, his practice that we grow to become a part of God's family. He made it very clear that we're to serve each other if we're going to be great in the kingdom of God. So I think the principle and the thought processes that he has and shows us in, in the gospel is that if we want to be in God's kingdom, we make it in by putting others first. I've spent most of my life, uh, early part of my life, I should say, uh, following my own lead and doing what I wanted to do because that's what I wanted to do and never really realized that what I was missing was people, my involvement in people, uh, my involvement with other people at the time was just tell them what to do, get out of my way because I'm coming through. Once God's Spirit is in you, you see a different perspective. You see that the other person is more valuable than you are. And you have a responsibility to help that value to grow. Jesus said he came to serve, not to be served. And then he got down on his knees, hands and knees, and he washed feet. It's very interesting that he doesn't, get it, he doesn't say anything before he starts doing it. And even the context seems to indicate that, he, that they are arguing about who's the greatest. You know? and so just picture this scenario where they're arguing blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And then he just gets up and maybe they don't even notice that he gets up. And you know, he puts some water in a basin, gets a towel and everything, and, and just starts washing their feet, which obviously would cause them to stop arguing and just take notice. And, and, and he does it to every single one of them, including Judas. And... Then he asked the question, do you know what I've done to you? And do you get it? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? And of course they didn't. Uh, but I think he, he says a very interesting thing then. He could, have, he could have just said, well, you know, I've set you an example. You, you should do the same thing. But he says before that, I am your Lord and Master. I am your teacher. I am your superior. And because I am your superior, and I'm willing to do this for you, to show you in what was familiar to them, what a servant does, if I'm willing to do that as your Lord and Master, you need to be able to do this for each other. We have this very unique opportunity to literally care for one another in a different kind of way. We are slaves of each other, bond servants, that we are totally living for one another, for God first and foremost. But we are slaves to each other, which is a, it's a beautiful thing, Jesus Christ, as the, the premier example that he would wash Judas' feet is in, just an incredible concept to think about how could he do such a thing. Christ, who knows all things, knowing what was coming, he knew the very next step. He knew exactly what Judas would do. But that idea where he was still willing, because it was not about that Judas was sin-free, and none of us are. We all sin and fall short. But we have the compassion, the humility, the love and ultimate care and concern for each other, where that is what total servant leadership is. He stated that he came to serve, not to be served. And so I think that it's about attitude. He's expressing an attitude. His attitude was one of service. And I think he wants his witnesses, his servants, to take on that same attitude of service. 
And I feel that when we are trying to gain that attitude, live that attitude, instead of having a mindset of get, as Mr. Armstrong used to put it, okay, we would have an attitude of what can I do to help? What can I do to serve? What can I do to make someone's life a little bit better? Jesus gave himself for the world. He laid down his life day by day in serving his apostles, serving his disciples. He spent time with them day after day, hour after hour with them. He gave the wonderful example of humility in washing his disciples' feet. So he was one who was the master teacher, but he also gave us the example of totally serving one another and said, He that is chief among you shall be your servant or shall be your slave. And so we need to follow that example of Christ of having the attitude of serving and of giving. As Jesus said in Acts 20, verse 35, is quoted, It's more blessed to give than to receive. God's way is a way of serving, a way of giving, a way of caring, a way of helping. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus Christ started his church. He came to raise up and to build his church. He was the founder and the author. Original Christianity has to be the foundation of what we teach, of what we do. And it is what is written in the Bible, the original Christianity, that has to be foundational to us now. I think I prefer uh, the um, original Christianity uh, title, uh, teaching what the apostles originally taught. I think that really captures it. Uh, I liked apostolic Christianity, but it's very important for us to have the right designation, first of all, of original Christianity versus apostolic. So that's why I think that was a, a good modification. Apostolic Christianity uh, leaves a lot of room for misinterpretation. And there are some denominations that misapply it to mean certain things that it doesn't necessarily mean. Uh, they apply it to certain eras, certain ages, uh, certain denominations, as I mentioned. But original Christianity, to me, implies the way that God the Father and Jesus Christ have always lived, what they taught. And so it's not something that has just originated recently. Something that has just come on the scene has always been there. It has been part of their character. It has been their way of life. Christ said that He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that whatever he taught those 12 uh, individuals and whatever he inspired them to teach uh, their, uh, those who were called afterwards is the same type of, same way of life, same type of Christianity that is expected uh, today. Original Christianity is, is very important because the Christianity of, of today simply is not the Christianity of the Bible. And Jesus Christ and the Apostles are the foundation, along with the, the prophets as well, of course, 
but they are the foundation. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. So why would we ever want to go to uh, Origen or Tertullian or various other individuals who came along that were influenced by Greek philosophy? And that's really a fact of life. If you, if you look at the history of it, uh, that's what they were influenced by. And we don't want that kind of Christianity. That's a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. And original Christianity has to be the standard that we live by. As we know today in, in the mainstream Christian world, there's so much confusion about what to believe and what to do and how much of what people believe is simply just traditions. It's simply just things, superstitions that were passed down and people don't even know anymore why they're taught or why they do what they do. The concept that what you see today that is called Christianity isn't the real deal. If Jesus Christ were to sneak back to earth just to check things out, would he recognize what you're preaching? Would he recognize what you're teaching? And sometimes you open up a mind by simply pointing that out. In fact, I even heard a telecast we did recently. It hit someone. They were they were talking. They weren't in the church, but they they looked at our telecast on Christ versus Christianity, and they realized that is exactly right. If I took what Jesus Christ stands for, what he preached, what he hoped for, what his designs were for his people, what his purpose was for mankind, and I took it, look at mainstream Christianity, they'd be at odds. And realizing the Christianity of today is not the Christianity of Jesus Christ, it's not the original Christianity, is one of those things that helps open up a mind to realize, wait a minute, if this isn't the Christianity of Jesus Christ, then I've got a decision to make. This world has been deceived by a false god. And the world doesn't know the way to peace and happiness and prosperity. And it's only through the knowledge that Christ gave to his disciples and he asked them to pass on to those that would follow them that we live this way of life. Original Christianity is not just in the New Testament. It's in God's word, the whole book, all the scriptures, as the Apostle Paul said, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. The early church was pulled off course during the first and second and third centuries by people who may have been well-meaning but may have been very deceptive, bringing in false teachings under the guise of Christianity. One of the books I have in my library is written by Will Durant, who's a Catholic historian. And he makes a very interesting statement. He said, early Christianity did not destroy paganism, it adopted paganism. There's another Jesus. The second Corinthians chapter 11, you can read there, there is another Jesus. There's a false Jesus who had long hair, who was born on Christmas Day at, at, at midnight, who came to abolish the law when the true Christ says, I didn't come to abolish the law, who is the Lord of Sunday when the, cruc the true Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath and the sign that will distinguish from any other type of Christianity, which is false. Every other one is false. Is the Sabbath day and the seven holy days and the seven feasts of God. That's what defines original Christianity, and it exists today. And we are part of it. We're practicing exactly the same. We keep the same day and the same feast that Jesus Christ, the true Christ, kept. And the often misnomer that we hear is, well, Christ was a Jew. 
Um, well, certainly he was a Jew in the fact that he, he kept the commandments that he himself had given and he was physically of the tribe of Judah, but he went that next step further. You know, it wasn't just about, well, you know, have I kept the Sabbath today? Tick. Um, have, have I killed anyone today? No. Oh, well, I've, I've, I've had a really good day. Um, you know, Christ raised the bar. He said, you know, it's not only, I'm, I don't want you coming home thinking, you know what, I've had a great day. I haven't you know, committed, committed adultery. You know, he, he, he raised the bar. He said, you know, have you lusted today? You know, because he said, if you have, well, you might as well just have gone and commit, committed adultery. And if you haven't murdered someone, well, that's great. But have you hated anyone in your heart? Um, and so Jesus Christ came um, preaching and teaching that way of life, which became Christianity. What does it mean to be a Christian, period? You know, the, the Barerians were more noble in that they examined the scriptures and proved what was true. And the first time the word Christian is used in the Bible, it means to be like Christ. So that in a synopsis, in a nutshell, it means to be like Christ. We are to be like Christ in every way. And the way of life they lived came right out of the law and the testimony as we read Isaiah 8.20 to the law and the testimony. If it's not according to this word, there's no light in them. We are to follow that same example. James 1.25 uh, says God created a perfect law of liberty. That's New Testament and it goes back to God's law, His commands, His way of life. That's what the New Testament church kept. It's a perfect law because it's unchangeable. God said in Deuteronomy, don't add to it, don't take away. It's a standard that never changes, unlike man's law. So why wouldn't we keep original Christianity? Why would we want to make perfect imperfect? We claim to be Christians, and Christianity is living the life as Christ would have us live it, imitating Him, which means that we should be just exemplifying in our way of life, His way of life his way of operating, his ideas, uh, the doctrines of the early church, which are clearly laid out in the Bible, in Christ's teaching, in the letters of the apostles. So it's important for us to get back to those basics. What does the Word of God actually say? What does it tell us to do? How does it tell us to live? And Christ is clear and emphatic in those things, and that's what we need to be doing. Original Christianity is the first century Christianity in which the apostles, the disciples, Jesus himself set the example of keeping the seventh-day Sabbath, keeping the annual festivals and holy days. The world has lost original Christianity. More importantly, even for us today, when you read through the book of Acts, and I encourage all of our brethren to do that, you find here were servants full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. There was Stephen and Acts the 6th chapter and Barnabas and Acts the 11th chapter. We individually as Christians need to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. God said that there would always be a true church of God somewhere and that that group of people, which will be few in number, would be faithfully adhering to the truth. They would be living this way of life. You would find that group. It would never completely die out. But here we are at the end of an age, and there's not a lot of true Christians on this planet. God knew that. In fact, he even said, when I come, will I find faith on the earth? How many faithful men and women will I find? It won't be many, based on that statement and others. Many are called, but few are chosen. So we want to be among that faithful group. God says to the Philadelphians, hold fast that which you have. Let no man take your crown. That's what we're trying to do.
when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Without faith, we cannot please God. Without faith, you cannot please God. If you don't have faith, you cannot please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, there is no hope. Without faith, we really don't have the motivation to do anything that God says. We must have faith. Without faith, we can do nothing. If you don't have faith, we can do anything. Without faith, you will not uh, do the best you can to be righteous. Without faith, you can't please Him. Without faith, you can't worship Him. Without faith, you can't know that He is. Without faith, you're like a wave tossed on the sea. He sees you like a wave, and then the wave is gone. With faith, you're like a mountain. With faith, you have a relationship with God. Faith means that we see, in a sense, spiritually what not, is not necessarily seen physically. It means confidence that we believe that God is, and that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. I believe, I believe, I believe. People say, how can you believe that? How can you say that? How can you, how can you practice that? I said, I believe it. The Bible shows me that this belief, this faith that I have in, in God and His plan is there. God is someone we cannot observe with any of our five senses. So the only way that we can truly accept and believe God is through faith. And faith, as we know, is the evidence of what cannot be seen. In Hebrews, we read that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We've got to understand that our faith has got to be solidly based on the truth, solidly based on history, solidly based on the scriptures. We've got to be able to believe that the scriptures are inspired. Now, that just doesn't happen automatically. We've got to prove these things. That's why Paul said, prove all things and hold fast to those things that are right and true. God is an invisible being. And what will distinguish us is that, that the invisible is real for us, like it was for Moses, like it's written in the book of Hebrews. He withstood as if he could see the invisible one. That's our calling. When we walk with God, like Psalm 46 says, we have that faith in perceiving the invisible one, even if the earth shakes and the seas are all in roar, we will not fear. And when we have rock-solid confidence in the reality of God and, and He will support His purpose and His Word, you know, it can lead us to have a great deal of courage. We know God's going to see us through. Uh, we don't have doubts or we don't wonder or we don't, well, I hope this or I hope that when it comes to the reality of God's Word. And we can go through life with a lot of courage and seek God fully and aggressively at times because we don't know everything. But as God begins to open our mind to direction, we can have that courage and we don't fear. In Isaiah 58 there, Christ says that I'll be your rear guard if you're doing what you need to be doing. If you, have, if you trust in me, if you have that faith that I'm going to be there and not let you go, I mean, nothing can come near you. The picture that always comes to my mind when I'm reading Isaiah 58 like, like that is, is the lion king. You have Simba, that small cub, and he's caught in, the, in that valley with the, the hyenas, and they're going to have a snack. 
and he's, he's roars as the strongest that he can. But he's so busy doing that that he doesn't see that his father is behind it and he's roaring. And then the hyenas are just scattering. And that's faith in, in God because we need to remember that he's the one behind us. He's the one that's the rear guard and nothing can come close. It would be scary to do what we have chosen to do, to live the way we've lived. There's, there's not a purpose without that faith in God's coming kingdom, without that faith in the reality of a father who is looking down and is ultimately in control of the kingdoms of men, as Daniel says. So if we rely on God to give us this faith, we can build on it. We can use the experiences that we go through in a positive way. And we build faith that way, but it's not our faith. God is doing it in us. We have His faith in us, and we can see things through His eyes, and we can have His mind and His thoughts. And we're not going to be real Christians unless we have that type of faith. We need to be men and women, children of faith, because we carry the name Church of God. In other words, we represent Him, and it's not our faith. As Galatians 2.20 says, it's the faith of the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. We must walk with God. We have to step out as physical human beings to trust that God is going to help us with the power, with the open doors, if we do what he tells us to do. And what does he tell us to do? He's given us that mission and we've been talking about a sevenfold mission statement that Dr. Meredith has outlined for us that's biblical. And as we obey Christ, as we follow his example, he will bless us to fulfill the mission. And we do that by faith. Faith is vital to preaching the gospel on all levels. For us to even be here, to have this conversation, it took someone's faith to believe enough in the message to respond to it. And it also took faith on their part to contribute to that work. But it also is on a, on a larger level, a higher level, to go through the open doors. And I remember hearing the stories about Mr. Armstrong um, going through doors that, that didn't even seem to be there, let alone open. Uh, but that after he did that, it became obvious that yes, that was an open door, even though it didn't seem at the time, but that took faith. And, and he was a great example of that. Well, I think Mr. Meredith is, is very much the same in many ways. If he could, he would take the majority of the money and preach the gospel and just you know go through every possible nook and cranny to preach the gospel. One of the problems some have had uh, that really know the truth is that they don't have the faith that the job can be done. And Dr. Meredith is a person of great vision and he recognizes based on the scriptures that a job is going to be done. And Mr. Meredith sees those verses that say, you go out into the world, you've been given something way too precious for you to keep to yourself. I expect you to tell other people about it. And that takes faith and trust. I'm really glad when I see Dr. Meredith on fire uh, saying we must preach the gospel, it means we must finish the work because it's the mission of the church. We cannot be the church of God without proclaiming the message that Christ gave us to preach at the end time. And now we've got this message going all around the world. 
India, Russia, China. That takes faith. It, um, someone without faith would never venture to do that. They would have said it was impossible, can't be done. And yet, it's being done. Now, Mr. Meredith is not doing it. His faith in God, and God is doing it through him, that's how we're getting it together. That's how we're getting it done. But it takes faith to be able to do that, to step out, to understand that all things are possible through God. Dr. Meredith's faith set the, set the tone for what the Living Church of God has continued to this day. Um, his faith is the reason I am here. His faith to completely step out, not knowing how things would go in two months or three months or six months, to do it because it was the right thing to do, to do it because no one else was going to focus in that manner. The gospel must be preached. The Ezekiel warning, it's got to go out. And that would be the entire focus of what he would do, that work that must be done, everything that he did when he totally stepped out. It's, it's a very unique thing. It takes a lot of guts to do something like that. Well, the faith that Dr. Meredith has demonstrated started with 19 members after the split, expecting that God would provide the increase. I think that's a tremendous example set by him. When he was actually forced to do something after WCG will not allow him to preach. He had no way of knowing that he would have the resources to do a work. He had to rely on faith that God would supply the need and he stepped out as he said, we would do God's work. That took faith. And the membership, seeing what Dr. Meredith does, it inspired them and it imbued them with the same type of faith to trust God under all circumstances to bless this work and to supply the needs and the ministers they believe that God will provide the need that's why we have these tomorrow's world special presentations going out to persons and just preaching the gospel to them and watching how God works on the minds of these individuals that they will join us to fulfill this work of getting the gospel to, the, to every nation on the face of the earth. And now, tomorrow's world presenter and presiding evangelist of the Living Church of God, Dr. Roderick C. Meredith. Brethren, I've been asked to explain what is the sevenfold commission and why is it so important that we have this commission? And I have here a copy, which many of you do, of the sevenfold commission. Number one, preach the gospel of the kingdom of God and the true name of Jesus Christ. That's the first part of the sevenfold commission. And brethren, think about it. The apostle Paul did this. And at the end of his life, as we'll see, and even before he came along throughout the Bible, Christ is preaching the kingdom of God. Kingdom means government. That was his message, not just about his person, but the coming kingdom. And back in Acts 8, 
It says, when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So he preached two things, the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Both men and women were baptized. He's preaching both those parts of the message. So you understand the coming kingdom of God and Christ is the king of that kingdom and his shed blood makes the way possible for us to be in that kingdom. You talk about the coming government of God and Christ is the way into that kingdom. He's the door and through his sacrifice we're allowed entrance into the kingdom and he will be the king of that coming kingdom. Back in Acts chapter 28 at the very end of the Paul's life. He didn't teach something different. Notice Acts 28, verse 30. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. What was he preaching? Preaching the kingdom of God, first of all, and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So he was carrying out both aspects of this first point the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ. The second part is to preach the end-time prophecies and the Ezekiel warning to the Israelite people. And I've already explained to you how important that Ezekiel warning is. A great tribulation is coming, and that tribulation is coming primarily upon the British descended and American peoples, the descendants of Joseph. We've got to get that warning to them before it's too late. We need to help the whole world understand their way is wrong. The great God of creation is intervening. He's going to shake all nations. And so we've got to turn back to God, all those around the world who are willing to be protected from the coming great tribulation and the day of the Lord if they will turn to God. The third part of the commission is to feed the flock and build all our members to the stature of Jesus Christ as best we can. We in this work are trying to teach you God's way an entire way of life. And, of course, we're feeding you by teaching you the details of the coming kingdom of God, what it's all about, the laws of God, the ways of God, and the true name of Jesus Christ, what Christ stands for. We hope you will grow under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, with Christ living in you so you can be in God's kingdom. The fourth part of the sevenfold be examples to the church and to the world of Christ's way of life. Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount, you are to be the light of the world. We're to be examples. When people look at us, they're not going to look for perfection, hopefully, but they'll look for people who are doing God's way. We've really got to live that way to be those examples to the world, to people in the greater Church of God community, and to our neighbors to set that example of the true Christ and the true way of life to help them. Fifth, learn and practice servant leadership in all our dealings with others. So we've got to be willing not to be authoritative, but to try to genuinely help other brethren in the church, to genuinely help our fellow man. That's the attitude we will have as kings and priests in God's kingdom. I'm here to help you, and not I'm here to rule you and push you, but to help you, and people are going to be scared to death. We will, frankly, brethren, have hundreds of millions of people coming back from the tribulation on Israel and other tribulations and upsets around the world. People that are starving, hurting, emotionally upset will have to put our arms around them literally and emotionally and say, we love you. It's going to be okay. Just be willing to follow God's way of life. He loves you. He wants to help you and practice that attitude of serving and helping them. 
The sixth part of the commission is to restore original Christianity and all that this implies. And I've explained that before. Original Christianity was not just believing on sweet Jesus. Original Christianity was talking about a way of life, of Christ living his life in you. And they obeyed God's commandments. They walked with God. They kept God's Sabbath all through the book of Acts. They kept the holy days. And in Zechariah 14, as we've seen in my opening sermon at the feast here, when Christ comes back, all nations will go up to Jerusalem to keep, not just to watch the Jews keep, but they will keep the Feast of Tabernacles. They're going to learn to worship God and keep His festivals which portray His plan. And so we're going to restore that Christianity which points to the true Christ the kingdom of God, the rule of Christ over the whole world. And that is an extremely important part of Christianity to get back to the original Christianity of Christ and the apostles. The seventh part of this commission, as I've given it in this article, is to build an atmosphere of radiant faith within God's church. Without faith, you can't do anything. You know that. God tells us that throughout the Bible. You've got to have faith to believe that God is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. That's in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. You must believe God. Know that God is there. Know that Christ is alive. He's at God's right hand. He's right now our living head, our merciful high priest, our coming king. He'll be the king of this coming kingdom. And to walk and live by that faith, that then gives us the inspiration. It gives us the courage to go through the trials that are definitely going to come and to put our faith and trust in God as we prepare for the coming government of God on this earth which this festival pictures. So let's have that kind of faith, brethren. Let's build that faith. And as we pray and fast and seek God, we can also ask God to begin to give more and more of the gifts of the Holy Spirit as they had in the book of Acts, even to heal the sick discern spirits, cast out demons, as we have more demons coming on the scene, which we will very much over the next few years, we're going to have to have that faith. God is real. The spirit world is real. We need to walk and live by faith, and we need to believe that God is there and know that He will guide us, and then we need the gifts and the power of His Spirit to finish this work. So let's pray for that, and let's build within this church that radiant faith the faith of Christ living his life within us and pray, brethren, for the power in doing the work and the power that can be given. If we cry out to God, he will begin to give us the gifts of the Spirit more and more. The more hundreds of people can be healed, demons will be cast out, and all kinds of things will happen to show where God is working. He's going to do that. He wants us in this terrible mixed-up world to be those people who stand in the gap we stand in the gap. We're willing to stick our necks out, so to speak, to do God's work, to teach God's full truth regardless because we have faith and trust in the God of the Bible. God help us to do that, brethren, with all our hearts.
Arizona, New Mexico, Kimberley, Ontario, Jacksonville, South Australia, Indonesia, Mexico, North Carolina, Statesville, Quebec City, Washington State Area, Central Mississippi, Toronto, Jamaica, Montana, Winchester, Singapore, Guatemala, Central America, Ocala, Charlotte, Lesotho and the Northern Cape, Manila, Australasian area of the world, Belgium, Caribbean island of Puerto Rico, Texas, French part of St. Martin, Southern Ontario, Doria, Asheville and North Carolina, Kentucky, Lake City, Michigan, Northern Indiana, Columbus, Mississippi, Washington, Auckland, New Zealand, Northwest Ohio area, Ottawa, Columbus, Louisville, Kentucky, Lafayette, Philippines, French Guiana, Alabama, South Africa, Grants Pass, Oregon, Georgetown, Ghana, India, Holland, East of India, North Carolina, the Southwest, South Wales, and up into the Midlands. Northeast region, Kansas City area, Europe, Reno, Nevada, Adelaide, Germany, Martinique, West Virginia and Virginia, Washington DC, Malaysia, Maria, Kentucky, Ethiopia, Martinique and Guadeloupe in the French Caribbean, Western Florida, East Africa, Philippines, Burundi, Indianapolis, Indiana, Faraday. Baltimore, Charlotte, Thailand, Malaysia and Southeast Asia, Luzon and Visayas areas of the Philippines, California, New Orleans, Bay Area in California. Southeast England, Canada, Brisbane, Australia, Central Texas, Adelaide, Birmingham and Montgomery, Alabama, Akron and Pittsburgh, Guadeloupe, Charlotte, North Carolina, Montreal, Tennessee, Madagascar, Trinidad, Myanmar, Charlotte, Cincinnati, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Terre Haute, Indiana, Cape Town, South Africa, Rwanda, Thomasville, Georgia. St. Martin and Haiti, Indonesia, Charlotte, North Carolina, the Spanish-speaking world, Trinidad, Barbados, Guyana, Brazil, St. Lucia, and Grenada. This has been a production of the Living Church of God.